Hello, you're listening to the Advanced Financial Planner, brought to you by the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners and your host, David Miller. On today's episode, we will be interviewing John Amundsen, RFP and President of Unbiased Financial Services, on his history in the profession, his entrepreneurial spirit, and his client-first relationship approach to financial planning. And welcome to the Advanced Financial Planner podcast. With me today, I have John Amundsen. John, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, David. Appreciate and being on. John, you've been president of Unbiased Financial Services for the last 22 years. And this is why I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, I want to hear your history your successes, your failures, what you've learned over this period of time to continue the success of your business. So again, thank you very much for joining us. Just maybe start by telling me a little bit about your history, please. Well, David, I I started uh, back in the trust industry, which really is a great place to get a good foundation in this business. And the early, uh, the early years were with National Trust. And uh, one of the things I learned back then is that the, the trust industry was a spot historically where the very wealthy clients would have their uh, financial needs met in the early days. So uh, the trustee industry very early on was a place that served uh, the needs of those that had sophisticated uh, requirements. And so that was that was interesting to me. I, I knew nothing about it. And my role in the trust industry was as a salesperson. So I sold their discretionary investment services, their trusteeship services, their executorship services, their record keeping services. And um, yeah, that, so that was, uh, that was very interesting. And I had a position with a couple of trust companies. There was uh, Canada Trust, uh, CIBC, and latterly uh, Royal Trust. So that spanned about 13 or 14 years. Yeah. And John, just stop there for a sec. Yeah. Let's go back even further. What was your motivation in becoming a financial planner in the first place? Well, I, I really didn't uh, have that initial motivation, David. So I remember I got out of school, I, I did a business degree and thought I had forgotten most of it. So I went back and did a, a master's degree. In, <laughs> right. so, you know, those early university years. So um, anyways, I got out of that and I was wondering what to do. And uh, my in-laws actually actually suggested that I go see a fellow by the name of Bob Hamilton, who was at National Trust at the time. And uh, they knew Bob, he was a local Calgarian. And I had started a little business uh, called SelectRite, and it was a business designed to help people make better hiring decisions, basically using behavioral description interviewing processes. So right. I, I would call. I called on Bob to try to uh, present my wares, and uh, he called me back about a week later and asked me to come in for a job interview and offered me a job to. Um, start in the trust industry. So basically, that's how I got started, David. Yeah. So you had an entrepreneurial mindset because you wanted to start a your own business there. And then you just happened to fall into the right place because of who you knew or who your family. Yeah. Knew. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and 
I, you know, picking up on the entrepreneurial mindset, I think is is probably key in this instance because um, that ultimately led me to creating the, this business model, and um, I think is pretty foundational to uh, uh, actually to my career. I mean, it's so. Yeah. So you spent 13 years or so with Royal Trust, got the financial background. You had the business management or business degree, entrepreneurial mindset. What was the key to saying, oh, I'm out of Royal Trust or out of the trust business. I want to set up my own shop. Well, I might, I might just spend a little bit of time on the, the experience in the trust industry before going there, David, yeah, sure. because it kind of connects. And the, the first thing about being in the trust industry is that, that the, the trust industry, by definition, is a fiduciary uh, environment. Right. And for those watching the podcast, if that language isn't familiar, it's basically an environment where you, you put the client's interests ahead of your own. And by definition, that's what a trust company is and, and a trustee is. So it, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great place to start because not many institutions in the financial services industry start from a fiduciary perspective. It's, it's difficult actually to find a, a firm or an individual that will commit to acting as a fiduciary in writing. So that's, that's the first thing about a trust industry and, and the value of, of that experience. Um, but where that leads you, David, is if, you, if you're acting in the best interest of the client, um, what became apparent relatively, relatively quickly is that you have to do more than just sell the service being offered by the trust company. So you and I both know that uh, these services are offered in a context, and 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 really, you have to address the context to do uh, what's right for the client. And so, you know, over the years, I I began to learn that uh, that may not have been delivered to uh, the level that I hoped it would be delivered. And at the end of uh, at the end of my time in the trust industry, I basically made the decision that. Uh, I wanted to create a firm that would treat clients the way that I would like to be treated if I was a client. So that was the core driver. And that meant wrapping our delivery uh, in the context of a, of a fiduciary environment and a financial planning environment. Yeah. And one of the, on the podcast previous to this, I talked at a very in-depth conversation with Doug McDonald about, about what a fiduciary is and he had a slightly different definition, not something in writing. So something you believe in is what I took from that. But it, it, what you're saying is so true. I used to work at a big bank and I could not, even though I thought I was a fiduciary, provide a fiduciary service. So I had to get out of there. And that sounds like the same kind of feeling you had. Yeah. And I, I didn't want, maybe I'll just clarify, David, what I, what I didn't, I didn't define, I hope I didn't define a fiduciary as uh, something that was provided in writing. I, 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 what I meant to say is that it's difficult to find someone that would commit to being a fiduciary. In Correct. So, yeah. So people talk about it all the time, but when it comes to actually defining themselves as a fiduciary in a manner where they stick their neck out, 
uh, it's hard to find someone that will actually do that. So, you know, I, I, I agree completely with Dave that, uh, with Doug, that it, it is a mindset and it's intuitive in many respects. And you'll quickly know that if you, if you want to function in that environment you, and you're not in that environment that you want out. That's right. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and again, the, back to the entrepreneurial mindset, was there some help, somebody to help you push, get pushed out of the Royal Trust? Or you just quit one day and said, no, I'm going to start this thing from scratch? <laughs> well, that's a pretty good question. The, I guess, the, you know, there are a couple of points there. One, a very important part of those early experiences is the mentorship. And I had a couple of mentors in the trust industry. And they really took me by the hand, you know, a young guy that, that had some vim and vigor, but uh, really had no knowledge of how the industry functioned. And good mentors were instrumental in, in, that, uh, in that role. And Do you want to name any names there? Or, um, oh, sure. Shout-outs? Mike Fiedler. Um, well, Mike was my core mentor. I mean, he, he really taught me a lot. He was the wills and estate and trust officer, trust officer at Canada Trust. I mean, as he'd, he'd forgotten more than almost any, anyone in this business knows by the time that, uh, you know, I joined him. So that, that was great. And uh, the, the other part of that, David, is it's, as most people know that are in, in an environment that they don't really want to be in, it, it's, it's tough to just walk. You, usually you have to get booted or fired or Something, something. So, yeah, something. Because it's hard to walk, and I do remember at the time as a salesperson, you, um, you know, I had performed uh, reasonably well over the years in that function, and uh, this particular year, Nancy and I, my wife Nancy and I, had just gotten back off an awards trip down to Cancun from the previous year, and and I. I, I knew the organization was restructuring their sales force. So they were starting to document uh, performance and I had had a poor quarter that, that quarter. And, and um, you know, I came back off the reward trip to a letter saying that I hadn't met my target for the first quarter and that, you know, an improved performance was expected. And I, re- I remember going for a, a steam that noon hour and I thought, you know, I, I know how to do this. And uh, basically I was just bored. And I remember right. thinking, do I want to do this? Right. And it was a resounding no. Right. And, you know, what I want to do is create something that delivers the type of service that I'd like as a, as a client. And so I gave my notice and I indicated that I wouldn't be taking any clients. And uh, I ended up with uh, one client and st- st- started I, I do recall my first year's annual re- revenue was were, was eighteen thousand dollars which coming off a good salary the previous year a good earnings was it was an interesting few years i i do recall selling my beloved volkswagen westphalia to f- fund my com- first computer system <laughs> right the sacrifices <laughs> you have to make exactly and was Nancy working at the time? Was she supporting the family or was yeah, it Nancy uh, was, just? Nancy's a registered nurse. So she had worked part-time up until that point, but she did work full-time and then a bit for the first couple of years until we got things rolling. 
And yeah, so uh, you started this business with one client and how many years or how many clients until you felt more comfortable or to be, when, when do you, in further to that, when do you consider yourself to be successful? Well, that's, that's an ever evolving thing, David. I mean, <laughs> there are levels to that, you know, I would, I would say we've been modestly successful at best, uh, really, because the, the, uh, the, the model really that I, I think we paid some attention to trying to get to work was really a net worth based model. And, and, and a net worth based model linked to compensation. And that that's, we had to build our own systems to do that. And I think it's probably the uh, the compensation most aligned with fiduciary duty and and technically probably you know near the top of the of the models in terms of compensation and how how a planner or an advisor probably wants to get well it, it it's well aligned with fiduciary duty but it's uh, difficult to administer. It's a margin killer from a business perspective. It, uh, in this day and age of fee transparency, it's it's completely opaque. I mean, if you try to explain to a client how the net worth fee model works and in particular their situation, it's not transparent at all. It takes, it takes a fair degree of sophistication to administer and explain how, how it works. Yeah, so, so you've gone from the sales aspect of Royal Trust completely to the opposite end uh, from a belief of a fiduciary, but actually implementing a business model that acts like a fiduciary. Yeah, yeah, well, we are a fiduciary. And so the so in term, coming back to your question in terms of degree of de, de, degree of success. Um, I have not been particularly successful beyond this small business in, in rolling that model out, but I haven't given up hope on that because uh, technology now, one of the challenges is actually implementing that structure and technology is getting to the point where it might solve uh, quite a few of those issues. And, you know, we hadn't, uh, we had a, I had a conversation just last week with one of the robo advisors in, in town. And, you know, I could just see his eyes light up in terms of that business model and how it aligned perfectly with what he had hoped to be able to deliver. And so there's, uh, there's still some interesting paths ahead, I hope. Yeah. And my, I should explain my definition of success, of success is you've been in the business 20 some years by yourself, building it from the ground up to me, I think you are successful in doing what you want to do every single day. Well, th thank you for that, David. The uh, and I I have not been alone. I can I can share that with you. That this has been a team effort all the way. One of the things I I learned early on, as as I think anyone anyone in business will know, is that if if they're not aware of their own weaknesses, they're they're in trouble. And I spent a lot of time understanding my own weaknesses and then trying to build a team around those weaknesses and uh, fill in the holes where, uh, where 
support was required. So it's been a team effort all the way. Um, yeah. So what do you like to focus on the most in the business? Uh, I.e., do you like to focus on your weaknesses or do you just go towards your strength and that's what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and then you farm out the rest? Oh, I definitely prefer to focus on my strength and I prefer to let others focus on their strength. Yeah. So what is your strength? What, what do you focus on? Well, David, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quick start. If you know the Colby index at all, uh, I don't need a lot of decision, a lot of information to make decisions. I'm an intuitive decision maker and I, I connect a broad array of dots rather quickly in most cases. So I can, I can, I can connect and see uh, paths forward given a complex net worth situation. I can prioritize what needs to be done and I can think through uh, parallel uh, processes that need to take place in sequence to, to identify what needs to occur over the next year or two. Yeah. So, so you're a problem I love, solver. I love doing that. Yeah. So yeah. It, is that the your favorite part about running your own business is just looking at different problems and figuring it out or is there more something more specific well that in a team environment i mean there, there's nothing better than having uh bright bright people at the table where the egos aren't at the table well you got your son there working with you so that helps That's as right. well Taylor and i have been working together now for over five years and it's been fantastic uh, Taylor is a lot better than I am in a lot of different areas. And, uh, you know, and we have uh, Yan Lee, our chief investment officer. And together, uh, it's in, really fun to come up with uh, solutions to complex problems. And are you still in touch with a lot of your mentorship as you've kind of come along? Or um, are you? Yeah. I'll, yeah I'll so last night, I uh, saw a few folks that I've known for quite a few years. So, um, having said that, it gets a little tougher as people retire, uh, as folks retire to stay in touch. But. And I think you're the best person to ask this. What is your best advice for new planners coming up? Uh, what advice have you given to Taylor, for example? Um, and he's obviously seen you through the years building your own business. Well, I think for really the best advice is that I... Uh, would give is find a mentor, find a good mentor, and and find an an environment that's conducive. If if you want to act, be a fiduciary, if you really want to act in the best interest of your client and do good work, find a firm that that has that culture, because there aren't many of them. And once you find that firm, uh, find somebody in the firm that's willing to take you under their wing and and mentor you along. And, and then uh, spend time growing your professional development and all of those. Oh, well, and develop some professional sales skills as well, I think probably helps. Yeah. And that segues perfectly to why the IAFP is set up, why you are a mm -hmm. member, you're an RFP. When did you first become a, a registered financial planner? Oh, that's a good question, David. One of my weaknesses is actually dates. So <laughs> I don't really know when I first became a registered financial planner. I know it was quite a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's been a great organization over the years. Basically, it's where the best planners in Canada congregate. 
you know, I'm sure there are a few very good planners that aren't members, but by and large, most of the really good financial planners in the country, I would suggest, uh, have some connection to the IAFP. And uh, I mean, the annual conferences were amazing just to uh, have a drink and rub shoulders with, with the folks and uh, get a pulse of what's happening in the industry. Yeah. And from a mentorship perspective, that's what the IAFP is obviously built on, is the idea that you need to have a mentor that guides you along to create a plan. I obviously had a mentor in Russell Todd that helped me along. Are you currently mentoring anybody? Aside no. from Taylor, maybe? No. Well, I am mentoring Taylor. And, you know, I remember initiating that mentorship program uh, when I was on the board uh, a number of years ago. And uh I think it's it's really been great in terms of uh, formalizing the transition of knowledge and experience and offering our our new members someone to connect with that can help them along. So I'm glad to see uh, it continuing to be an important part of the organization. Yeah, and that's great. And obviously you uh, were part of the board. I see the little award behind you. Nobody can see that on the podcast, but I know Spencer in our office just got the same one for time served. And, and that's just an incredible way to kind of give back to the financial planning industry. Uh, what else are you up to in regards to your business? And maybe just tell me a little bit more about your ideal client. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking to help? Well, David, ideally, I, I prefer... Um, situations that are more complex than simple because I get a great deal of satisfaction out of simplifying things. Right. And I know what a hardship it can be on families uh, when there's a bunch of complexity. So I, I like dealing with complexity and I like helping families uh, simplify that complexity. Often, often there's a disconnect with um between spouses, and for example, when you when you hit my age, perhaps you know late fifties, early sixties, the it's it's not unusual where you have one party in the in the couple has had extensive business experience, and, and the other not so much, and then you and then you and then you contemplate well, what happens if if they lose one of them, if one of them dies, really. And then, and you have a survivor trying to make sense of uh, a complex array of financial instruments and relationships and uh, all built with this language that often they have very little understanding of. Yeah, it's a it's, giant mess. Uh, it's a giant mess. And, and the hardship on the family, especially in these second relationship scenarios where you have may, may have children from a first marriage and uh, you have a second relationship, it, it's extremely complex. And if if good planning isn't in place in those scenarios, it can it can be very hurtful in in many ways. So I love that sort of environment where. A uh, bunch of complexity, stuff all over the place, an objective to simplify, and a two or three year process where it takes a, a while to pull it all together. And at the end of the day, uh, everybody's looked after with an, uh, 
and everybody understands what's going on. So that's what I like. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the focus on your business, then um, you're not just doing the super complicated. You're also taking on simpler clients. It's not what you enjoy, but maybe tell me more about this net worth model and why that's a little bit different. Are, and is it a family office that you've set up or? Well, historically a family office is, um, there are many that would argue that it's a sort of an ill-defined term and right. marketing term and right. really doesn't mean anything. And it, at the end of the day, I would agree with most of that. And I would suggest that the, the, the one core idea is that if you're not a fiduciary, you probably shouldn't be calling yourself a family office. So, right. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's really how it all started. The wealthy families would hire their own staff to look after their financial affairs. And you just have to think about a master servant relationship and in a, an employer employee relationship if if you found out that your employee was taking commissions from a supplier and you were their employer they'd be fired so yeah. the the employee has a duty to the employer which basically in 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 our role as planners when you have a fiduciary duty to our clients we have a duty to our client so um Basically, the idea of a family office is, is that you have a fiduciary relationship and you probably have some uh, expertise and experience in relatively complex situations and you take on fewer clients. So, so having said all that, um, one of the reasons uh, to focus on that market segment historically is it was it has been difficult to achieve any margin on from a business perspective on clients that didn't uh, didn't uh, support a certain level of revenue per annum, but that's changing now. So, for example, the robo advisors are uh, I think providing a platform that enable you to deliver good service in a fiduciary environment. Uh, at a lower price point. And so there is an opportunity to broaden that, that spectrum from my perspective. Yeah. When you say broaden the spectrum, you're just talking about the number of clients, because obviously you want a, when you're satisfied with a situation, it's very complicated. There aren't that many enormously complicated situations out there. It's rare. There's a lot more people out there that are just looking for help. And that yeah. model from a robo-advisor robo perspective, they still need someone to support them through the biases they have through, uh, maybe my bias against robo-advisors comes out here, but <laughs> um, there still has to be somebody that coaches uh, them along, but maybe talk on that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that, David. In fact, uh, you may be familiar with the language around a credence good or service. And for those that aren't familiar with that language, a, a credence good or service is a, is a service where it's difficult to know the value of the service before you buy it and often after you buy it. So in financial planning is really a credence good in that it's very difficult for our customers to know the value of it. Having said that, they have been conditioned over the years to... Uh, to understand the value of good investment advice. In fact, probably mistakenly so, to the point now where good investment advice can be 
obtained at a very low cost. Yeah, it turns and into a commodity. It's a commodity. And, and what is really quite valuable is the relationship that you referred to earlier. Correct. Uh, in terms of a, a planner to help folks um, with their overall implementation of their investment plan, amongst other things. And just coming back to your question around the net worth model, David, I, I think a good example might be something like this. If somebody had free cash flow of just for easy numbers, let's just say 100 grand a year where they could allocate uh, the, that post, that money somewhere. And and let's also assume that they were mid-career, so they still had remaining debt, for example, and they'd already used up their RSP contribution room. It's um, If one was to measure volatility, not on a portfolio basis, but rather on a net worth basis, you, you, you can argue that uh, a balanced portfolio would be taking 50 grand of that 100 free cash flow and paying down debt and taking the other 50 grand and putting it in a pure equity portfolio. And from a traditional perspective, that's rather ludicrous to have a 100% equity portfolio. But on the other hand, from a net worth perspective, it's a balanced perspective. Right. And, and you can argue that the after-tax yield on debt repayment exceeds virtually anything you can get in AAA debt these days. So. Uh, you know, that's an example of a net worth model versus a traditional uh, financial investment model. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Look at the entire situation, not just the account, which is what a lot of investment advisors do at this point. They just manage that one specific account and the risk tolerance, put them into A, B, C, D, or E, and then you're they're done. And they don't consider yeah. everything else that's going around with the client situation. Yeah, and, and really the question is... How does a planner get paid for that level of sophistication? So right. if the status quo is to take all of it and put it into a product that pays you 1% uh, versus taking half of it and instructing the client to pay down debt, which reduces your revenue in half. Uh, so that's an example of the challenges of implementing a, a, a net worth based model. Yeah, it, it's always how to commoditize the financial planning of it because we don't want to be a commodity. We want to be an advisor that has a long-term relationship that's valued uh, much more than just a single transaction. So yeah, I, I, I completely understand the net worth model and the, the struggles in that. So if you could look at yourself and your own business, any advice that you'd give somebody else coming up, uh, would, would you suggest somebody follows in your footsteps uh, in your specific business model? Or would you suggest just focus on the fiduciary aspect and build what you want to build? Yeah. You know, it's been, uh, I've, it's been a great career for me, David. I've loved it. Uh, I've felt very satisfied. I've had, I, you know, I was talking with Taylor the other day about this. I don't think I've, uh, I've worked maybe a couple of weekends in 30 or 40 years. Right. And, and, uh, not many days after five or six. So it's, it's been a, a very nice environment with which to, in which to, to serve clients. Um, 
I, I would I would encourage people coming into the industry to have their entrepreneurial hat on and their fiduciary hat on and look for opportunities because uh, I think some of the new technology and software coming out is going to make it much easier to deliver uh, this type of offering uh, at a at a lower price price point, and I think the opportunity to will be there to help a lot of folks. Yeah, and certainly this is not a technology type of conversation. I think we could spend an hour just talking about technology and the types of things that you're seeing and um, implementing. We could have another hour conversation about robo advice uh, and what that might mean. We could have another, like there's so many ways we could inform the public. Um, but what's the biggest thing that you would say to just anybody we walking on the street, uh, how do we get them out of the uh, sales mindset and into the uh, arms of, well, financial planners. And I said, uh, yeah, bank employees, employee, people walking on the street, but it could be a bank employee wanting to get out. It could be just um, prospective clients. How do you, how do you promote that? I think they have to want to get out, first of all. I think internally, it, it probably has to feel wrong for them where they realize, you know, they're paying more attention to their targets than they are to the needs of the client. And if that feels wrong for somebody, then they should start looking for a different environment. Yeah. It sounds altruistic in a way. Oh, it is. I mean, yeah. that's the driver. It, you, you're not in this. I don't think you are in the business we're in David without being somewhat altruistic. Right. Yeah. Well, um, anything else you want to bring up in regards to advice? Um, anything you want to tell? Uh, this is your soapbox. This is your opportunity. Uh, I don't know. For uh, most folks generally, spend less in urine and uh, pay attention to your estate planning. And for, uh, for those of us in the planning industry, start early on your succession. You mentioned Doug McDonald earlier. I remember listening to him speak and, you know, he said, start by the time you're 50 because it, it takes 10 or 15 years to get it in place. And I know we've been working on it here for at least 10 years and, uh, you know, it's, it's nicely underway now, but it takes a long time. Yeah. And there's a succession, but then there's actual retirement. I still don't think Doug's retired. Um, Russell Todd's still not retired. They're still looking after, some clients, I think Doug said he's oh, yeah. one or two. Yeah, and you get to do what you really like doing. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff that um, people that are more talented than than we are get to look after. So it's uh, it can be a, a very nice transition you know, without a hard retirement. Well, obviously your passion for um, advice only is evident there, John. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's been a really good conversation. I've learned a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, David, I appreciate uh, your reaching out and uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners, home of the most respected planners in Canada, and your host, David Miller. Thank you for listening. For more information about the IFP, becoming a registered financial planner, or how to take your financial planning practice to the next level, please visit www.iafp.ca. 
Don't miss another episode. Remember to turn notifications on when you subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts.